This is a sermon brought to you by Good News Bible Church, where we believe we should love God, love others, and make disciples. We are located in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood and invite you to join our family live every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. as we praise and worship with songs and learn about God through the study of the Bible. You can visit our website at goodnewschi.org. That's goodnewschi.org. Let's turn now to hear what the Word of God has for us this week. So one indication of that might be, the, were they supposed to cast out believing ones? So I think of someone like Ruth, right? Remember Ruth with me? She was a Moabite woman. And Ruth, when it is time that her mother-in-law was coming back to Israel, she does something very abnormal for peoples of that day. She forsook all of her gods, all of her traditions, all of her ways, and she clung to Yahweh saying, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I want us to understand as we have this natural resistance today against what, what is maybe being said in this text, it is not that believing proselytes like this are being tossed out. The point is, those who would come into the community and bring the influences from outside are being excluded. And in general, uh, this is, of course, going to make it a lot, a lot more rare for any one of the Moabites or Ammonites to come into the people of God. This still can have this existential crisis for us. And I don't want to get bogged down in this sermon in that, but I want to give, for, for anyone who's feeling that sense for anyone who isn't understanding or, or just can't seem to reconcile this with New Testament truths of reconciliation in the gospel, I want to be able to give you a few places to go. First of all, it's important that I point you to Deuteronomy 23, 3-6, and I tell you that I, we should not apologize for God in the command that he gives there, okay? One very important principle for us, we cannot apologize for God for what he says uh, about this law. Another thing we need to see is that if we understand this kind of a command in judgment over people, a generational uh, kind of a judgmental statement, if we think that that's outside of God's character, I encourage you to turn with me even now to Exodus 34. It's Exodus 34. We're going to look at verse 6 and 7. The word of the Lord says this. This is a time when God is revealing himself to Moses after Moses says, Oh Lord, show me your glory. It says in 34 verse 6, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation." Friends, as hard as these things are to hear, I want you to know when we hear them, they arise from the Word of God. They arise from the revelation of God. 
And when that makes it hard for us to reconcile that, I encourage you to push into that wrestling match and to hear what God has to say. Because when our natural understandings of God that we have had from our youth up start to rub against something in the scriptures, perhaps it tells us we need to visit the way that we see God and understand God, right? Because the biggest thing is what I would hate to see for you or for me today when we come to a text like this and we feel it's not right, like God's decision on this is not in keeping with our standard of justice or our standard of grace or our standard of love, I don't want us to sit over God as his judge. Because, friends, God is the only leader in the universe. He's the only being in the universe who rightly sits on a throne high and lifted up, who is accountable to no one. So I just wanted to be, throw this out here for you today because I know this, this kind of language, this kind of text hits us in that way, right? But if we can go back to more the, the tenor of the text, if, if I have correctly read verses 1 through 3 to say that Israel is correctly um, dismissing foreign Ammonites and Moabites, we actually see that verse one, in, 1 through 3 here are an encouraging note that the people are still in this time of renewal. They have listened to God. They have obeyed God, even though it must have been very difficult for them as well to heed that command. That couldn't be easy for them to hear. Some of these people may have lived in the communities for a while. They may have been there when Judeans came back from exile. So they may be uprooting people to obey this command. And yet they did it. But today what we're going to talk about, it, we're about to hit the hinge in verse 4, where the whole trajectory of the book of Nehemiah is going to hinge. Throughout the whole book, we've seen nothing but joy and growth and renewal, and yeah, there's things that get hard, yeah, there's things they go through, they have to stand up against mockery, they have to stand up against opposition, they have to stand up against internal opposition, but throughout the book, they're winning overall until today. You see, my topic for today is the sting of decay in the people of God. We've talked much about renewal, but what happens in the life of the church, in the life of each of us as believers, when what was being renewed in our life, what was a, a hill or a mountain or a wall of finished uh, achievements in our life starts crumbling down and decaying. When we had been doing so good in our thirst for the word and then all of a sudden we look back and we find that, again, there's no hunger and there's no concern. When we find that we had been walking in victory over that sin that had so plagued us. We thought we were finally beyond it in a whole new season and it was behind us forever not to plague us again. And then we stumble back into it. When a church or ministry has been thriving, growing, doing great things in the Lord, you just can't believe how, how much it's grown. And then you get a phone call and you hear that Oh, leadership has strife and troubles within and it's, and, you know, it's crumbling and falling from the inside out. 
Friends, we're familiar with this. This happens uh, in our lives, both to individuals, families, groups, and in ministries and churches. Decay takes place. So, if you will, pray with me as we enter into the rest of this text and examine some ways that this decay looks in our lives. Father, I do pray that you come and be with your church today. I pray that you would, uh, Lord, give me the words to speak. Dear Lord, let your word be clearly heard and seen today in this body. Father, touch our hearts for any of us that, that we may be uh, exhibiting some of these roots of decay, Lord. Help us to turn away from them, to turn back to you, Lord, by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So, if you will, turn with me to this hinged verse of chapter 13, verse 4. Verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber, where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levite singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions of the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. What we see here in these verses, first of all, is, uh, can be tricky to work out uh, on a timeline. First of all, back in chapter 13, verse 1, we see this phrase at the beginning, on that day. Now, some of you like me may be kind of thrown off by that. That phrase, when we see it, looks to us to point back. And so we might think that this reading of the law of Moses took place on the same day as the dedication of the wall. However, that is not the case. What we're looking at here is their, their time has elapsed between the dedication of the wall in chapter 13. And the on that day is simply saying, basically, if you will, on a certain day, or there arose a day that they read the law. As far as I've been able to study out the timeline on this, Nehemiah at that point had probably already gone back to uh, King Artaxerxes. So he had been the governor of Judea, and then he went back to Persia and conducted a role there for some time. And we're going to see that he comes back and finds what they've been doing. But in verse 4, there's another time marker that is tricky. It says, before this, Eliashib the priest had done this thing. Again, on the timeline of things, what I want you to understand is it is not that that, that time marker may be meant to be temporal, if it is, the idea would be that before, a lot, before uh, the instance of the Moabite and Ammonite exclusion, that the uh, Eliashib had already been appointed over the storehouses. But the important thing that I'm trying to get at is that there was this recognition that we need to cast out the Ammonite and the Moabite. And after that, after that, arises Eliashib, and he says, you know what, actually, I'm going to take Tobiah and give him a room in the storehouses. Well, 
there's a problem with this. Tobiah is introduced to us earlier in the book as an Ammonite. So what Eliashib does here is an immediate contradiction of what they just did in verse 3. They have... They are already, there's a strong disjunction. The author wants you to see that they are disobeying God straight away. They're disobeying Deuteronomy 23. In doing this, Eliashib abuses his position of authority. Here he is, he's a priest. And I think one of the things that is behind his uh, disobedience to this command is that he has begun to make his own calls. He thinks to himself, I'm in charge of the storehouses. That's my stewardship. And because of that, I can make the call as to whether Tobiah gets a room there or not. But then you have to wonder what's in his head. How is it that he could want to give this room to Tobiah? Well, the text tells us that he's close to Tobiah or related to him. You see, if we look back in Nehemiah 6, really quickly, Nehemiah 6, verse 15, we will see that, in fact, Tobiah is fairly influential. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in the 52 days. And when all the enemies heard of this, all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly of their own esteem as they perceived that they had been accomplished within the help of the Lord. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son, Jehonanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. What we see about Tobiah is he's very well networked in Jerusalem because specifically the people had disobeyed the command of God about Ammonites and the people of God had disobeyed the law of God about intermarriage. And so here we see the outworkings of that. The outworkings of that are that an ungodly man like Tobiah has great influence among the people of God because they opened the gate to him. And now he exerts this influence even over a priest, even over Eliashib, and we see that he is swayed by his need and perhaps by his position. I think we still have these two problems of Eliashib today. I think we still like to make our own judgment calls. You see, th that's ultimately the heart of sin when we choose to rebel and go our way. The Bible tells us to flee temptation and make no provision for the flesh. And then we turn around and we choose to entertain ourselves with things full of sexual content and wonder why we fall into sin. You see, and then we, uh, the Bible tells us slothfulness is sin, and we explain how we spend so much time relaxing and in recreation and so little time in diligent labor. The Bible says, confront a brother's sin. But we say, I don't really know if that's actually my place. And we find ourselves in a time in a society, friends, where this has happened. We, 
we tend to decide we can kind of parse that out for ourselves. We'll use our judgment and our discernment. Other than that, I think we also fall into his other sin. I think that we're swayed by human influences. The church at large certainly has been, because when the world says that loving God, a loving God couldn't condemn men and women to hell, many have questioned the doctrine of hell, turned to annihilationism, claiming there is no eternal punishment. The world says that homosexuality is natural and should be celebrated. And many professing churches and believers go along that path and will re-examine that issue. The world says there are many ways to come to God. And we too start to question some of these pluralistic ways and thinking and give way to that. How can these kind of sins take root in Eliashib's heart and ours? I'm trying to parse out the root cause that we would abandon the teaching of God for what are is expedient for us and for what is uh, the influence of men. And the underlying cause, friends, I believe, is that Eliashib lost his vision and value of the sacred. And again, if you're looking for point one today, I believe he had lost the vision and the value of the sacred. The storeroom didn't seem so sacred to Eliashib anymore. It was just a place to put some things. And, you know, as he did that, he said, why not give it over to him to live in? Eliashib also must have not been seeing God's word as authoritative anymore, right? He must have seen it as either a suggestion or perhaps he didn't even know it. But if he didn't know it, was it not because he didn't study it? And friends, do we find ourselves in that same place? Do we find ourselves in a place where we have lost the sense of the sacredness of the word of God? That it's, it's actually something that is supposed to be speaking to us? I think that we have a tendency to be forensic and flippant with the word of God. Sure, it's something to be studied out to see what we can say, to see what it says, and then we use it. Have anyone ever heard of that expression, using scripture? I think something in that speaks to the way we think about it. It's something to be used. It's something to be wielded. It's something on our tongue that gives me license to do something or makes me right and you wrong. And we wield it like a weapon and we ourselves are the master. And then at other times, we're flippant. Friends, coming from a Bible college of all places, I'm actually very aware how often is the Bible the butt of jokes. And we're quick to just toss it about. There was a professor at Moody who said something that has stuck with me and troubles me some to this day still. Dr. Schmutzer would say, the day that I cease to tremble at the threshold of a biblical text is the day I need to do something else if I've become too familiar with the text. Friends, I ask you today to investigate your heart. Do you see the word of God as sacred, as from God, from a great transcendent mighty God, and as such it has authority for you, and that you, you must know it, you must study it, 
And you must obey it because it's from Almighty God. I think he had lost that, and I think that's part of why he fell into decay. But there are other things that are holy as well here. Not, it isn't just that he didn't take the sacredness of the word. He didn't take the sacredness of the things of God. He didn't protect the sacredness of the storehouses and the tithes. Well, friends, we're going to talk about giving some in a minute, so I won't talk to you about the sacredness of tithes, but there's other things that are meant to be sacred, and our society doesn't do sacredness very well. I think of something like a holiday. Holy day is the root of that. The holiday of Christmas is to be holy, set aside to the celebration of the coming of our Christ, our Messiah, our King. And yet in the church, we let in all kinds of other things. If you ask someone what Christmas is about, it's about family. Well, family's good, but now does, does Jesus have to share with family? It's a lesson in general generosity for everybody. Oh yeah, we give and giving's what we do. Well, certainly giving is what we do and it's an application of Christ. But now are we doing that instead of focusing on the coming of Christ? You see, we don't set aside things well in our society. We, this is one reason we battle to have a time carved out where we set aside to do our devotions as a people typically because our schedules are mostly kind of game to be rearranged because we don't do well at setting something aside and saying this is God's and it doesn't shift and it doesn't move it's dedicated it's holy to him friends I think a cultural tendency to do that is upon us and I think that tendency runs us the risk of falling into decay as we no longer regard the things of God as sacred so that's the first root of the decay in Israel, I think, is that they lost the value of the sacred. I think the people did as well. You see, because the people saw this going on. The people knew Eliashib was wrong. Well, I say that, they're, they're one of two issues. Either they didn't have the discernment to know he was wrong, or they didn't have the courage to stand up to him and to call him to accountability to obey God. In this body today, when we see a brother or sister in sin, if we saw leadership in sin, if we saw anyone in sin, do we have the discernment to know? And do we have the courage to confront? Because, friends, if someone really is remiss, if someone is breaching something sacred, like following God, obedience to an almighty God, shouldn't we be eager to rush in and to set someone straight, not in meanness, but in love. We have to value the sacred as the people of God. We'll look now at the second offense in Nehemiah 13. The first offense is this matter of Tobiah in the storerooms. The second we read about in verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled, each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Now turn with me for a minute back to Nehemiah 10. Nehemiah 10, begin verse 34. This was the portion of text where they 
recommitted themselves under the obligation of a covenant. They all signed a document making many promises. This is what they said in 1034. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed when year by year to burn the, on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests, the sons of Aaron, shall be with the Levites. And when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouses, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, the gatekeepers and the singers. See it here. We will not neglect the house of our God. This was promised not many short years before we see this breach of that very promise. They quite simply don't do what they said. They do not bring in the tithe. They cease to do so. And I'm going to look now with you to what I think are three reasons why they did not. The first is I think they lost their delight in the ministry of the Levites. You see, in Nehemiah 12:44, the text before, it says this. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, and the first fruits and the tithes to gather into the, the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. If you remember this, this picture we saw last week of all of the people God coming around and the Levites are, are singing and leading in song and leading the people in worship and they're looking on, they're delighting in it and they're following them into worship. And in that time, they saw the value of the ministry of the Levites. But over time, as things went on, things became humdrum. It wasn't a special celebration anymore. It was just another day. They didn't appreciate the ministry of the Levites anymore. It wasn't important to them to help them out. Perhaps they were even a little upset. Why do I? have to provide for this guy who sits around and sings praises to God and keeps track of songs all day? Why do I have to pay for the Levites who stand and take care of the, the temple and clean the utensils and such and so forth? Why do I have to cover that? And there might have even been this resentment of feeling like the, the Levites were considered better than them and so they had to pay them or lick their boot. They lost their delight in them and they no longer wanted to pay them. Well, friends, I, I want to ask you, 
when it comes to your giving, have you lost delight in the ministers you support and the ministries that you give to? Have we reached a place where when we, we become so critical of various ministries and what they do that we no longer delight in the work that's being done. We no longer have this joy inside of us saying, yes, let's support those kids at ICI. Let's support the work of Moody Bible Institute. Let's support the work of Good News Bible Church. Let's support what's going on around us working for the Lord. I think many times in our culture we have lost that delight, especially when it comes to giving to things in general. I've talked much about giving with people in recent days, been thinking about some tendencies. Do y'all notice that it's easier to give when it's a specific uh, call to need, right? So for instance, in this church, I remember how well we responded when someone mentioned, oh, we need money for someone down the street, their house burned down. And it touched our emotions, of course, as it should have, and we quickly reached into our pockets and gave and met more than our goal to help those people out. We can do a good job of giving when there's a need before us that we're excited about and we delight in it and we want to help. But then sometimes things like general funds don't excite us, right? Whether that's at the church or that's at parachurch ministries, Friends, everyone's feeling this right now in Christian circles. People do not give like they used to. And I want to challenge each one of us to think, do we delight in ministries enough that we'll give even if it isn't like a particular stimulating need? Because I think when we get to the point that we lose our delight in the ministers and the ministry around us, then we'll cease to give. And that is one way that will fall into decay rather than renewal as a people. But that's not the only way. I don't think it was just as simple as that one thing. I think they also lost their gratitude for the renewal that led them to give cheerfully in the first place. I think they lost their gratitude for the renewal. Remember last week as they marched around the wall, they had these choirs and they said they were choirs of thanksgiving that sang thanks as they went. And these people were so thankful and they went back and they made these sacrifices and they gave these offerings and it was all with joy because they saw that God had brought them from exile. He settled them back in and they so appreciated the trajectory of what he'd been doing in their life that they were more than ready to give out of gratitude. And friends, I think over time, again, they begin to take that for granted. And I want to remind us that over time, we can take it for granted. And we cease to be grateful. And friends, if you lose your gratitude, I want to tell you this, the decrease in your giving will be the least of your spiritual concerns, actually. Yes, you won't be giving, but if you lose your gratitude to your heavenly Father, your Savior, your Deliverer, your friend above all friends, and that relationship becomes in a bind, how sad is that decay? How sad is that decay in that relationship when he's done so much for you? Finally, I think that another root is that they lost their assurance and their trust in divine provision. They lost their insurance in divine provision. I, I imagine them farming and having a hard season and saying, you know what? 
maybe I'll just give next year when the crop is a little bit better. And then after that, next year crop's a little bit better, but they think, oh, you know, maybe I'll just give a little less than normal. And over a period of time, they give less and less and less because they think, wow, things are kind of tight. Maybe I can just take care of it. But I want to direct you really quickly, really quickly to Malachi. Chapter 3. What you may not know is we have God's word on this. This is God responding to the same instance. Malachi is a contemporary of Nehemiah. And when these people don't bring in the tithe, God responds. Let me see which verses I want to go to first. 8 through 12. Will man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Friends, what I'm not doing today is preaching the prosperity gospel to you. But what I am trying to hold out to you is the truth that sometimes they distort. And that is, friends, when we are generous with our things, whether that's time, whether that's things we own, whether that's our money, God will bless you for that. He may not make you a millionaire, but he will bless you for that. Put him to the test. If we think we have not to give, let us give anything we can and trust in him to provide. Because friends, when we lose those things, we fall into decay. I've told you four things in the text that I think that Israel lost and then they fell into decay because of it. I would tell you this morning not to lose those things, but frankly, church, that's not good enough. If we simply focus on the negative, not to lose them, we will have long lost them before we realize we have. Instead, I urge you to cultivate those four areas to avoid decay. Cultivate your awareness of the sacred. Cultivate your delight in the ministries around you. Cultivate your gratitude to God and cultivate your trust in his provision. Friends, my, my time has, has drawn to an end. The good news is next week will be a part two. It naturally is. This text was sadly kind of had to be divided for sake of our time together. But next week we'll look again at more areas where we can fall into decay and that are a danger to us. But just food for thought this week. If you'll be in the passage, it will minister to you as you go. Consider also leadership amongst a time of decay. And imagine what this was like for Nehemiah to come back and see. And then we might consider what it will be like for us if we see it in spheres that we're in. And join me in prayer as we pray. Lord, Father, we come to you today. We thank you that you are good, you are just, that you do renew us. Dear Lord, I pray that you would be at work in this people to continue to renew us. Lord, make us fear decay because we don't want to fall away from you. Dear Lord, let it be out of love. Let it be because we want to be in a good relationship with you. 
Dear Lord, go with us this week and, and give us courage and give us strength and keep us watchful as we are prone to wander. And we trust in you today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Good News Bible Church, where we equip people to love God, love others, and make disciples. To help support our mission, please visit our online giving portal through our website at www.goodnewsshy.org.